Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. Happy Easter. So if this comes out when I think it is, yesterday was Easter. Oh, yeah, that's right. It will be Easter. Yeah. So, uh, or it was Easter, rather. So, yeah, exciting things. We'll probably be uh, talking about some themes of Easter uh, today a little bit, just as we talk about uh, some relevant themes that occur in Exodus 18 through 20. There are going to be themes of outsiders contributing substantially to the fulfilling of God's covenant to his people. And during Easter, we talked about that with Jesus. This week, we're going to talk about that. Uh, with Moses and uh, the Israelites, so that'll be that'll be fun. We may or may not draw those parallels, but we shall see. Uh, there's always a good time for the Easter message. Then there's always going to be parts of it that are relevant to pretty much everything that we talk about in the gospel as it relates to Christ. It all comes back to Christ at the end of the day, anyway. Right. It all comes back to Christ. It's kind of the point. And uh, I just want to name that. Easter is, like I said last week, the central proclamation of our faith. It's not straight marriage. It's not eternal families. It's not any of that other stuff. So the fundamental proclamation of our faith is not, if your marriage isn't straight, your heaven won't be great. Nice. (laughs) Right. That's not the the fundamental proclamation of our faith. The fundamental proclamation of our faith is, he lives. Mm Mm-hmm. So happy Easter, everyone. And let's, oh, and so all of you listeners out there, I, I just dumped five, literally five pages of notes onto James <laughs> this morning about what I wanted to say. So I'm going to have a lot to say, and I don't have time for jokes. Literally, I just don't have time for jokes this week because I've <laughs> we'll got see. so much other stuff. I am still on guard. So <laughs> uh, before we go ahead and get into the content, I uh, just want to remind everybody that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we're going to be in Exodus 18 through 20. It sounds like you got some prefatory words you want to put out before right. we dive into the content. Yeah, so we've got three major portions here, the one in each chapter. The first one is on Jethro. Then the second one is a, the adoption of the covenant in Exodus 19. And then the Ten Commandments, or Ten Words, is the, the biblical phrasing of it in Exodus 20. So I want to just name that. Oh, I've got a lot to say, but let me just say this. Uh, I want to focus also on three areas here. And those were are the concept of God's timetable, or at least what people are claiming to be is God's timetable. The concept of which way do you face, and also the concept of whether it is ever appropriate to, quote, demand of God. And already that's uh, framing the, is- the issue very in a very prejudiced manner to call it demanding of God. But anyway, I want to focus on those three areas. And I also want to name that I am a product of the leaders and members of the church. Almost everything that's cool about me, everything that's controversial about me, everything about me is directly due to what I was taught by the leaders and members of this church. So the things that people are going to come at me for is because of what they taught me and what I took seriously. And I find it disingenuous for people to 
form, shape, and influence me, and then get mad at me as though I'm the monster that they created, right? It's their... As though you're the monster they didn't create, like you're a consequence of their actions. Yeah, I am. So here's what they taught me. They taught me to liken the scriptures unto myself, and I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. They told me to devour the scriptures. They told me that all are alike unto God. They taught me that God is love. Um, They told me that we believe that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. They taught me to ask of God. They taught me that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, right? So I am literally doing what they taught me to do, and now somehow I'm the bad guy. I just don't know. Uh, I think that's why if people listen to me for even just half a minute, they realize that I'm actually not the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to name those things uh, up front. All right. And so... Yeah, let's let's. One of the interesting things about uh, the Jethro passage, Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses, Zipporah's dad, uh, a, a priest of Midian. He's a Midianite, mm-hmm. and so he's an outsider. And if you look at the narrative contrast with what we had two weeks ago, this is the Gen- uh, the Exodus seventeen text about the Amalekites. Jethro was an outsider whose contributions increased the amount of Torah that God's people had. And Amalek was an outsider who launched an unprovoked attack on God's people. And I think the narrator makes a contrast here. And this idea that there's an explicit contrast goes back to Ibn Ezra in in the medieval period, a Jewish commentator. And I just want to name that as not all outsiders— when they come at you, are actually challenging you. Some are actually improving you and refining you. And here I am, a convert to the church. I'm coming here with a lot of the spirit of Jethro. Mm -hmm. And we'll see that as we get into the Jethro uh, text. Well, let's just go ahead and just get right into this Jethro text. So I'm going to be reading from Robert Alter's translation And I want to name up front that St. Jerome said that the ignorance of scriptures is the ignorance of Christ. Mm. And that's why I'm going to be quoting a lot of the scriptures here, because part of my case that I'm making is that these are the scriptures that have always been there. They're the scriptures that have formed me, that they're the ones that inspire me with the passion, with the activism, with the heart for the outsider. All this stuff isn't of me. And it isn't of Satan. It's right here in the text already. The text that, you know how often the leaders of the church tell us to read the scriptures? Yeah, literally. Yeah, and I'm doing that. And I'm I'm putting it into practice. (laughs) Like, I just, yeah. Well, anyway. So let's go into Exodus chapter 18. So here, let me look at verses 10 through 12. So here Jethro comes up to Moses and says, Uh, Blessed is the Lord who has rescued you from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh, who rescued the people from under the hand of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in this thing that they schemed against them. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came and all the elders of Israel with him to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So here... Jethro is clearly an outsider. He says he refers to the people of Israel in the third person, in the second person, who has rescued you from the hand of Egypt. So 
because he's coming as an outsider, he comes to this problem from the standpoint of faith. And I haven't mentioned the problem yet, but the problem yet is that Moses has too many cases to judge and it's taking a long time and it's delaying justice and it's and it's exhausting everyone. So Jethro is coming at this problem from the outside, but he's also coming at it from the standpoint of faith. He courageously joined the people of God and then brought all of his wisdom and experience with him into God's people. Here he praises the Lord, brings an offering, and that's what I did as a convert. I am still bringing all of the wisdom and experience and valuable insights with me to the church, and that's going to improve the church. And that's actually what our leaders have always said. Bring all the good that you have with them. Mm-hmm. I think Hinckley said something like that. Brigham Young said something like that. Joseph said something like that. Bring all the good you have with you. Mm-hmm. So let's look at what happens with this issue. I'm going to read verses 13 through 14. And it happened on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood over Moses from the morning till the evening. And Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people. And he said, What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why are you sitting alone while all the people are poised over you from morning till evening? So here, Jethro comes and asks a prophet of the Lord questions. Jethro holds Moses accountable. And I have that same spirit. Anyway, this is verse 16. And Moses said, to his, uh, this is 15 and 16. And Moses said to his father-in-law, for the people come to me to inquire of God. Pause here. Look what they're doing. They come to inquire of God. Mm-hmm. That's literally what God's people do. They inquire of God and go to the prophet, right? Anyone who says that it's wrong for us to go to the prophet and inquire of God, you have not seen the power of the scriptures. Anyway, let me go back and read this again. And Moses said to his father-in-law, For the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have some matter, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his fellow, and I make known God's statutes and his teachings. Close quote. So here you see that Moses now makes himself available for these questions. He Mm -hmm. makes himself available to the people, accountable to the people, well, not so much accountable to the people's critiques here, but uh, available for people's questions, mm-hmm. and people are able to come to him, mm-hmm. and that's good. But we'll see that this causes a problem because now he is judging cases all day, mm-hmm. doesn't have time to get to them all, and doesn't have time to do anything else. Mm-hmm. We see a similar thing that happens in, of course, I've taught this many times, Acts chapter six, where the apostles delegate some of their power to uh, six individuals from. I'm sorry, seven individuals from the community that's affected and delegated power to them so that they don't have to wait on tables. Right. So let's go back to the text. Here's what it says in uh, uh, in verse 17. And now watch what Jethro does. He brings his own experience to this situation. Remember, he is probably older and wiser and has experience uh, with these things of being a high priest of Midian and being an outsider. Here's what it says. And Moses's father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. Let me say that again. The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear yourself out, both you and this people that is with you. For the thing is too heavy for you. You will not be able to do it alone. 
Now, heed my voice. I shall give you counsel, and may God be with you. Be you for the people over against God, and it shall be you who will bring the matters to God. And you shall warn them concerning the statutes and the teachings, and you shall make known to them the way in which they must go, and the deed which they must do. As for you, you shall search out from all the people, able, God-fearing men, truthful men, haters of bribes, and you shall put over them chiefs of thousands, chiefs of hundreds, chiefs of fifties, and chiefs of tens. And they shall judge the people at all times, and so every great matter they shall bring to you, and every small matter they themselves shall judge, and it will lighten from upon you, and they will bear it with you. If you will do this thing, God will charge you and will be able to stand, and also all this people will come to its place in peace. Close quote. So here we've got Jethro's advice. And Jethro is sharing his wisdom from his own experience. And Jethro speaks his mind to a prophet of the Lord. In verse 18, he uses persuasion and he uses patience. He's saying, but he does clearly state the truth. What you're doing is not good. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about this issue of which way do you face. In verse 19, it says... Um, Be you for the people, and this is Jethro talking to Moses, be you for the people over against God, and it shall be you who will bring the matters to God. Now there's all this, I don't know where this came from, this tradition in the church that the prophets are only a one-way communication device, that God says stuff to us through the prophets, but the prophets don't do any speaking to God on our behalf, mm -hmm. that they only face in one direction. I think there's someone gave a talk on this a, a generation back or so, right? You've heard this. Do you which, face? Yeah, which way do you face? Yeah. But anyway, it's very clear that Moses goes both directions here. He faces both directions. He brings the matters of the people to God, as well as bringing God's statutes to the people. Hmm. I also want to talk in verse 21 what it means to sustain. And I don't have time to talk about a full definition of sustain here. But to sustain a prophet is to make their burden lighter to do some of their work for them, to to shift some of the burden off of them onto yourself, to um to, to do some of the prophet's work for them. To lead out is a good word in this, right? And to sustain essentially means, it doesn't mean to agree with, it doesn't mean to obey, it doesn't mean to listen to, it means to give them what they need to keep going. And if you look at the word sustain, how it's used in the literary environment of the 19th century, when we're talking about sustaining leaders, if you look it up in the KGV, I don't have time to do it right now, but if you look up all the usage of the words uh, sustain everywhere in the KGV, it's always about giving sustenance, giving them food or giving them something to keep them going. It does not mean to obey. It does not mean to surrender. It does not mean to uh, any of those things. And the, the biggest proof for this is that we are never, ever, anywhere in the standard works said to sustain God. Right, we definitely obey God. We mm -hmm. uh, are are subject to God, but we never sustain God. God does not need our sustenance. Mm -hmm. It is people who are weak, who are imperfect, who need help to keep going, that need sustenance. And so, when we sustain our leaders, when we sustain our leaders, we give them what they need to keep going. 
But that doesn't mean we agree with everything. That doesn't mean that we violate the principle of common consent. That doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable. That doesn't we doesn't mean we speak our mind like Jethro did. Jethro is the example of sustaining. Right. Yes, he says to a prophet of the Lord, what you're doing is not good, and here's how you fix it. But that is sustaining. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about Moses and God's timetable. So here, this is a piece of Torah that we got when and only when Jethro noticed something and spoke up. And this is the near universal pattern in the Doctrine and Covenants. Almost everything we got in the Doctrine and Covenants happened because someone spoke up or someone noticed something or something took something to Joseph or something happened. It wasn't God, God on God's own timetable just dumping stuff. I mean, I think maybe DNC 76 might have been that, but I can't really think of a lot of revelations that just came out of nowhere. A lot of it is very much timely. And you can see this in Joseph's life where he got backed into a corner and then cried out to God and got revelation. Like that is the pattern that we see. And so when people talk about God's timetable, it can be very manipulative. People just imagine that this God's timetable is some perfect absolute plan and it's not mm-hmm. right maybe god has an absolute plan but it's negotiated based on human agency and human initiative god wants us to learn things god wants us to lead out god wants us god does not want us to be commanded in all things as uh where is it in the dnc i can't remember right now um but yeah and so this is amazing that we wouldn't have this piece of Torah here if uh, we would not have this piece of scripture. We would not have this amazing revelation um, Without had it not been for Jethro speaking up. Yeah. What do you think of all this? Okay. We had, there was like four things in there and I'm not going to be able to like get to all of them. I don't think if I do miss something, do let me know. But um, I, I will say at least to this point, I will always go out of the way to point out when it is outsiders or the otherwise less valued members of society who are contributing to the biblical narrative in a significant way. In this particular mm-hmm. qu- case, uh, you know, Father Jethro giving us more Torah, Father Jethro giving Moses a way to not just uh, be a more effective administrator, but also to just not, you know, wear himself out or like, wither himself to the reeds. You know what I'm saying? Just la- last week, mm-hmm. we uh, cited the uh, book of Luke a bunch. And uh, Luke was likely a Gentile himself. And I don't believe it's a coincidence that in the book of Luke, there are several narratives that highlight the contributions or the importance of the marginalized. Uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son are all in the same chapter. And the uh, Sermon on the Plain, a, a modified version of the Sermon on the Mount, just happens to talk about blessings to be given to people who are on the outskirts of society. That's in the book of Luke. Uh, using the women to announce the news of the Savior's rising and commissioning Mary Magdalene, a woman who had devils cast out of her, to announce both the rising and the ascension of Christ. Mm-hmm. These are all reminders of the character of God to use the least of these, the left out, the outsider, and the otherwise othered to contribute in substantial ways to the fulfilling of God's promises to their people. Jethro isn't much different here. Like he's right in that tradition. How much like how, how how like Christ is it? How like God is it to use people like like even Moses was one of these people. You know what I'm saying? Moses was, you know, a former mm-hmm. Egyptian royal turned Midianite shepherd and also 
with significant accessibility needs. And uh, he's in this position. He's in a marginalized position and Jethro is in this outside position, but it's just so like the character of God. So like the character of Christ to use those who are otherwise not valued, not uh, sought after, not uh, strong to accomplish their purposes. God is using mm-hmm. in this particular case, a, a, a Gentile man to provide some wise counsel for effective administration of the entire Jewish nation counsel that we as a church use today. And like the, uh, preach my gospel. When we talk about the organization of the church, these verses, as well as uh, others in the uh, others in the Hebrew Bible are used to talk about and justify why we organize ourselves the way that we do like the, like the 70, for example. But uh, yeah, I, I just really like that. This is how uh, we use and how we talk about uh, Jethro as uh, as an outsider. Yeah. I, I think it, it says something great about Jethro, but it also says something great about Moses, and I didn't even read the concluding parts of this. Mm -hmm. So Jethro gives his advice, and here's what Moses did. Verses uh, 24 through 26. And Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men from all Israel, and he set them as heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, chiefs of hundreds, chiefs Mm -hmm. of fifties, and chiefs of tens. And they judged the people at all times. The hard matters they would bring to Moses, and every small matter they themselves would judge. So he did. Ex- so Moses did exactly what Jethro said. Now, what what does this mean? That this is our example of what the greatest prophet of Israel did. He was humble. He was teachable. He was accountable to people quote below him right in the hierarchy like this is jethro's a nobody at this point right he right. is uh in terms of the hierarchy well there really was no hierarchy here right it was just moses but it was moses and so moses didn't say well i'm a prophet and i know everything he didn't say that he didn't say how dare you come to me with advice how dare you come to me with suggestions mm-hmm. he was grateful for someone who noticed a problem and and took initiative and, and fixed it. Now, I definitely think that they brought this to the Lord and the Lord approved it. I don't think that they did this outside of of um, revelation, right? Mm-hmm. But I definitely think it's within the context of, uh, I think it's implied in verse 19 where Jethro says, Now heed my voice, I shall give you counsel, and may God be with you. So I think, I think Jethro is saying, here's my advice. And you should do this if God uh, approves. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be some renegade uh, alternative prophet here, but I'm saying regular people have the right and duty to point out to the prophets things that need to be done and expect them to take it to the Lord and expect mm-hmm. them to be humble enough and teachable enough and honest enough and a team player enough to actually make some changes. Big time. And we see this in the history of the church. Almost every good change that has happened in the church has happened because someone spoke up. Emma Smith. I don't have I don't have time to list them all right now, yeah. but there's been a lot of bottom up revelation in the church. Mm-hmm. And uh and uh, maybe at some other time we can do a more extensive study of those. But <laughs> were you going to say anything else about this Jethro yeah, passage? Like uh while we're yeah. I mean, not relating to uh, Jethro being a Gentile necessarily, but like I did want to uh, point out what he uh, names as a uh, necessary 
thing for leadership. You you briefly alluded to this, but like Jethro encouraged Moses to select men who were God-fearing, trustworthy, and who hated uh, dishonest profit. It like strongly suggests that the priority in enlisting spiritual leadership in the first place should be identifying those who are living in a godly manner, people who are biblically focused right. in their dealings. And uh, we see these qualifications mirrored in the words of Paul. Like if we go to First mm-hmm. Timothy 3 or Titus uh, chapter 1, there's these, like the qualifications of what it takes to be a leader is more on uh, character traits than it is on anything else. And uh, those particular three, I just thought it was interesting that uh, that Jethro pointed those out as what Moses should be looking for in leaders of their people. It wasn't about family connections. It wasn't about genealogy. It wasn't about education. It wasn't about, uh, you know, any of those, uh, you know, worldly things we may use to, you know, measure the worth of a person in a leadership position. This was, this was all about, uh, you know, character traits, basically. And I just uh, really appreciated that part of it. And also the part where, uh, like, like this is another lesson, healthy boundary setting. Uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. are conditioned to say yes to a lot of things. And Moses, you know, bless his heart, made himself available to the people of Israel. He felt like that was his responsibility. But he was burning the candle at both ends. And he was going to eventually end up in a place where he wasn't going to be of any kind of use to himself or to his people or to God. You know what I'm saying? And I just am appreciative that he took this advice, not just because he took it from an outsider, but also because it put him in a position to succeed as the means through which the covenant of God would be fulfilled to the rest of the people of Israel. This is a temptation of people in all kinds of positions, not just leadership positions, but um, especially people who are engaged in uh, you know fights for social justice or in the battle for uh, the recognition of people's humanity. We, we don't do enough justice to ourselves when it comes to uh, giving ourselves breaks or giving ourselves grace because we just feel like if we don't do it, it won't get done. And that is true to an extent, but also the other lesson is we can't do this without help. Like we are engaged in yeah. a very large battle. We are engaged in a very significant and uh, a very significant work that's going to take mm-hmm. us that we're probably not going to mm-hmm. see the fruits of in our lifetimes. And I would just hope that anybody who's engaged in this work or engaged in any kind of work would, uh, you know, for one thing, feel comfortable and confident in asking for help and also make sure to take care of themselves. Like rest is not just a form of resistance, but it is a form of self-care. And like people need to, you know, take advantage of that lest they burn out. It is very easy to burn yeah. out in this work. And uh, once you burn out, the likelihood of you you know, returning to it or making sure that it gets done is significantly reduced. So, mm-hmm. you know, take your mm-hmm. breaths, take care of yourself, say no to things. Um, all of that is very important. And delegate like Moses did. Yeah. And I want to just name that the that a people will be happier if they know that they have just judges over them, judges mm-hmm. who are accountable and available and trustworthy. Because right. I think they could bear any number of other um, other problems, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, poverty or illness or any other number of things if they don't have to deal with injustice, right? right. Because if they know that they'll have justice then they can uh, they can handle uh, all these things with so much more energy and resilience. 
Right. Maybe we should go on to Exodus 19 because I'm going to have a lot to say. Like I said, I I dumped <laughs> five pages of notes on James this morning. It is totally fine. Let's go ahead and move to uh, Exodus 19. This so is Sinai want... and the Ten Commandments, basically. Yeah, and there's a lot we could say here, but I'm going to make this short. I really love this, um, yeah, this near right. poetic, this near poetic passage in, um, here they are camping next to the mountain and Moses goes up to God and the Lord calls out to God, uh, from the mountain. And here's what the Lord says to Moses. This is verse, uh, verses three through, uh, six. Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and shall you tell to the Israelites, You yourselves saw what I did to Egypt, and I bore on you the wings of eagles, and I brought you to me. And now, if you will truly heed my voice and keep my covenant, you will become for me a treasure among all the peoples, for mine is all the earth." And as for you, you will become for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. And I just love that. And I think it's really interesting that uh, it starts out by saying, you yourselves saw what I did to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And what did God do to Egypt was, what God did to Egypt in the sea was exactly what Egypt was trying to do to the Israelites by throwing the infants in the Nile. Right? Mm. It's sort of a poetic, um, and we've talked about violence and, and how we that gets processed in our narrative, and I don't need to say more about that this week. But I just want to name that I think you have some, some poetry here about wings of eagles, the protective nature of God, um, the loving nature of God, and how God cherishes God's people, and that will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, I should say that there is uh, a lot of people will say, well, why do the Jews think they're the only ones that are chosen and that they're the only ones that God made a covenant with? And both of those are flawed understanding of what rabbinical Judaism actually teaches. Number one, rabbinic Judaism teaches that God made two covenants, uh, one sort of inside the other. One is with Noah, all the children of Noah. The Noahide covenant is with every everyone, including Gentiles. And so... God has a covenant with everyone already, according mm -hmm. to uh, traditional rabbinic Judaism. And within that, a special people are called with a special covenant, which is the Torah. And that you don't, within rabbinic Judaism, you don't need the Torah to be right with God. If you're a Gentile and you obey the Noahide commandments, you're fine. You're great. You will have a place in the, in the kingdom to come. Like, you do not need to, to convert to Judaism to be right with God. Uh, you do not need to become, right? It's not like, oh, we're the only ones that are saved. And the second thing is, is that it's not, uh, rabbinic Judaism traditionally does not teach that God picked Israel because he loved them better than others or, uh, or anything like that or didn't give everyone else a chance. According to, uh, I can't remember where the sources are right now, but it appears in several places in rabbinic Judaism, it's framed as God actually went to every nation and offered them the Torah, and they all rejected it, with the exception of Israel, and Israel accepted it. So everyone, according to this story, got a chance to accept or reject the Torah, and uh, Israel's the only nation that accepted the Torah. 
And not only that, but righteous converts of all nations, according to Judaism, are welcome to accept the Torah too and become part of the children of Israel. So it's not as um, exclusive or um, superiority-ified as, as, it, as it can sound. And so we definitely want to avoid anti-Jewish um, readings of this text or, uh, or readings of Judaism. So I just wanted to name that. I wanted to move on to the next couple of verses. And here we have this principle of common consent here in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 19. Quote, And Moses came, and he called to the elders of the people, and he set before them all these words that the Lord had charged him. And all the people answered together and said, Everything that the Lord has spoken, we shall do. Mm. Everything that the Lord has spoken, we shall do. So the people had the ability to opt in. Yep. They consented to the uh, this covenant. Mm-hmm. It was a something approved by the people. So even God doesn't do something to people without their consent, right? Mm-hmm. He gave them the option. Right. And they absolutely could have, have said no, uh, mm-hmm. just like every other nation uh, of the earth said no. Right. They could have said no too, but right. they didn't. And so I love that God respects us as co-creators of the covenant because a covenant doesn't work unless it is uh, consensual, unless two people right. come to agree together. Right. Um, and so I just think this is really beautiful. And notice how Moses, look at what it says right here. So it says, the people answered together, and they're answering Moses, right? Mm-hmm. Moses said, said uh, set this before them, and all the people answered together and said, everything that the Lord has spoken we shall do. And Moses brought back the people's words to the Lord. And Moses brought back the people's words to the Lord. Isn't that amazing? That's that. That Moses actually thing. faces both ways. Yeah. yeah. He, Moses, you know, Moses goes both ways, but I don't go both ways. <laughs> there it is. I was waiting for that one, by the way. Oh, you were? Oops. I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so Moses faces both ways. He takes messages to the people and he takes messages from the people to God. Like, why are we somehow unfaithful for believing that that's what prophets do and expecting our prophets to do that? You know why. Like, hello, <laughs> Come on, the man. scriptures that you gave me formed me mm-hmm. into this expectation. Like, don't tell me, read your scriptures and then get mad when I do and actually take them seriously. And so we see there is a difference between leaders who are self-serving and powerful and seek to protect their power and position and leaders like Moses here who self-sacrificially empower others. Mm. Moses had humility and curiosity both with Jethro, both with bringing Israel's communications back to God, Mm -hmm. being a go-between in both ways. And there's just so many other beautiful things in this chapter uh, something there, something to be said about consecration, that this was special, that this was sacred, that this was um, otherworldly and supernatural. There was a, This was a special moment. It can be almost analog- analogous to a marriage between God and God's people, but, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm not going to say too much more about that right now other than, um, yeah, this is a covenant and marriage is a covenant, and, and there's more to be said on that, but I don't want to say anything more. So let's go on to Exodus chapter 20. Are we ready for Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments. Let's go. Yeah, the Ten Commandments. So 
also called the Decalogue, which comes from the Greek words for ten words. Mm-hmm. Um, these ten commandments can be summarized into two tables or two tablets. The, and it also depends on how you number them. Uh, Jews, uh, Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox all number the Ten Commandments differently because on one level, when you actually look at the text, there's nine of them. Mm-hmm. So you have to either divide one of them here or there, uh, or you have to add, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt as the first commandment. Mm-hmm. You have to do something to make it into ten. Right. But anyway, because of that, there's different numberings of the Ten Commandments. And depending on how you number them, the first three will be love for God, or maybe the first four. And then the first, uh, then the last seven or the last six will be love for neighbor. So you have beautifully summarized love for God and love for neighbor being the summary of the Decalogue. You can also read, so we have the Ten Commandments twice in the Torah. Mm. Uh, You have it also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 22. You should also look at those. Maybe we'll come back to them when we talk about Deuteronomy. But there's some important contrasts because some of the phrasing is a little bit different. Some of the... some of the justification is a little bit different. Some of the mm-hmm. explication is a little bit different. Nothing like completely contradictory. But off the top of my head, the commandment on, in the Sabbath, in the Exodus 20 version, the justification is creation. That in uh, six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth and then rested. That's the justification for Shabbat in in this version. But in the Deuteronomy version, it's not based on the six-day creation. It's based on uh, you were slaves in Egypt, right? Yes, and so that is the the rest that is enjoined to remember that the Israelites were taken out of Egypt. Mm. And so looking at this, we can see that our framing of things can change. Our, our, our covenants can change. Our way we process the covenants can change. Our ordinances can change. I think that... Um, we have circumcision is not a universal ordinance. Baptism is not, a, you, know, you know, we've just got things changing and, and we should be ready for change. And part of the ready for change has to do with the fact that we're given stuff line upon line. Mm-hmm. And this is the line that, that uh, the children of Israel were on. And as we get more lines, doctrine changes. And mm-hmm. it will be different for different people depending on what their line, what, ready, what, what they're ready for and what line they're on. Um, I want to just name uh, some specifics in the Ten Commandments. The biggest one here is idolatry. Mm. And we've got a problem, I think, <laughs> in uh, that every human wants to put something other than God mm-hmm. in that place that was meant only for God. Yeah. And that's why um, we see that the Lord is a jealous God in verse 5 of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Oh, and God doesn't want there to be any other thing in that place that was reserved for God. Mm-hmm. And Protestants uh, typically put the Bible in that place and worship the Bible instead of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Catholics can be tempted to put the Pope there and make the Pope into an infallible authority or the teaching magisterium of the church in that authority. Mm-hmm. I think we as Latter-day Saints are also tempted to put prophets and apostles in that space that's only reserved for God. Mm-hmm. And we all need to hold each other accountable for that. There's going to be people who validly tell me, hey, Derek, you are focusing too much on the scriptures or you mm. are, you know, you're doing, <laughs> which is true, right? Mm. Um 
there's going to be times I'm not I'm not immune to this either. I'm human. I'm going to want to in my sinful capacity put something other than God in that spot that's reserved only for God. Mm-hmm. But for many members of the church culturally, we are uh, treating the apostles the apostles and prophets like celebrities, like royalties. Now yes, they are in a sense spokespeople for God. But there's a humility that's a halo around that. They're only there by God's will mm-hmm. and in the sense that they are pointing us to God. Mm-hmm. Insofar as they're not pointing us to God, they're not prophets. They're not apostles. I think it was um, Joseph famously, famously said, a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such. Mm. Right? They're nothing other than people through whom the Lord can speak. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so... Um, they should not be idolized, but we should always look through them at what they're pointing and never idolize the leaders of the church and make them out to be something way more important than they are. Absolutely. Like, I feel like... I want to talk... Lot... Oh, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I feel like, uh, you know, this idolatry goes a lot in hand with, uh, you know, another commandment to not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Um, I feel like we use oftentimes and you know speaking of idolatry we will do things in the name of god but they're not actually god's words we'll do them in the name of a prophetic like a prophet's teaching mm-hmm. or in mm-hmm. the name of preserving something like you know the traditional family i was on a, i was on twitter the other day and i saw someone praise uh you know i know you don't want to talk about this but i'm going to and, you know, I'm going to be very brief with it, but they said something along the lines of President Noakes has drawn a clear line in the sand. It is time to either get on board or get out of the church. And uh, I couldn't help but think to myself, like in a theology as robust and rich as Mormonism, it is just so sad that we have made such an idol out of the traditional family out of queer phobia, out of bigotry, that we think that to simply disagree with those things is to basically put off our faith and that we would have no place here. Like, it was one of those examples of both breaking this commandment of idolatry as well as taking the name of God in vain, because obviously God does not want that. But also, it's not like when your faith identity is so wrapped up in bigotry that nobody else can be Mormon unless they agree with it. Like that, that's a problem. That is a sickness. That is, that, that is something that, um, that is something that we need to work on like desperately. That is one of the clearest, uh, breakings of those commandments that I have seen. And also connections of the, uh, commandment to not commit idolatry as well as the commandment to have no other gods uh before um you know before god and mm-hmm. the the only mm-hmm. other thing i wanted to say was just this first part of the first commandment that is usually left out when we list the 10 commandments which kind of makes god this abstract being rather than somebody who is concretely present working on their people's liberation it also changes the meaning of the phrase other gods and right. uh that is, let me just go ahead and read it directly. This is the NRSV in a chapter, chapter 20. Verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then follows 
you shall have another, no other gods before me. It is identifying God as a liberator. And uh, if this God is a liberator, the God that we worship is the God that has brought their children out of Egypt, then other gods are oppressors. If our God led the Israelites out of Egypt, other gods mm-hmm. could have Amen. and did, as we are going to see in further studies of the Hebrew Bible, lead them back to Egypt. Like we saw this in back in chapter 16. We saw the uh, children of Israel lust, lusting after the flesh pots of Egypt because wilderness life was too difficult. Being led into this new way of life by the God of Israel was too hard. And that way, that lusting after the flesh pots back in Egypt, that was going to lead them back to Egypt, back to their gods, back to the gods of oppression, back to idolatry, interestingly enough. But anyway, getting carried away with this point, but this is to say that the identity of God as a liberator helps us understand who the other gods are. And all that to say Mm -hmm. that missing Mm -hmm. the key context of uh, this particular revelation can sterilize, can abstract, deodorize, Santa Clausify, and obstruct our mm-hmm. readings of the text and perhaps make them dangerous, which is like what I saw in this, uh, this tweet over the weekend. I saw something dangerous. I something, saw something idolatrous. I saw something that will lead people away from God, that will lead people back to gods of oppression. This is why knowing the history and the context of the scriptures and the scriptures themselves is so important. I disagree with you, Derek, in saying that you study and focus too much on the scriptures. I will go ahead and say, people in our church, we don't focus on the scriptures enough. We don't know the scriptures well enough. That is how we get to this point where we obfuscate God's words so badly to the point where we identify homophobia, queerphobia, bigotry as necessary parts of our faith identity. Like, how did we get to that point of having such robust and rich doctrine revealed to us, even just only as far back as the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon? We have all these evidences mm-hmm. of a compassionate, mm-hmm. of a communicative God, one who re- is responsive, one who is loving. And this is what we this is what we stake our faith on? Like, come on, man. Like, where are we? Who are we now? This is like, again, this is why knowing the history and the context and the scriptures themselves is so important. If we miss that context, if we miss those lessons, we run the risk of reading any revelation improperly or the very least without the amount of specificity that, you know, they require in our modern day and age. We, we don't have the ability to liken the scriptures to ourselves properly without that context, without that knowledge. So, uh, yeah, God yeah. of liberation. That is one important thing I wanted to make sure was highlighted uh, as we read these Ten Commandments. God is telling us who they are, and we have to remember that and hold that Mm -hmm. in distinction to any other gods that might lead us to a God of oppression, one that will tell us that we have to basically keep others out in order to be, you know who we are as Mormons. And if it's saying that we got to keep queer people out, if it's saying we got to keep black people out, if it's saying that we got to keep people with identities that they cannot change out, like those are gods of oppression. I agree. And I think it makes so much sense as you put it that way, that you have to look at this as a two-way pact between a God and a people. And we have to know you have to know the who, you have to understand the who in order to understand the what. Correct. And the who is the God 
that brought Israel out of Egypt. And the yep. what is what God is asking them to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it only makes sense within that context. Now, I just want to name for completeness sake that even these things are filtered according to the language of the people, right? One of the great tragedies is that these Ten Commandments in two separate places permit enslavement. And mm-hmm. I just want to name that. I don't agree with that, and I don't agree with people who interpret that to justify enslavement. Mm-hmm. But even in the uh, the commandment about keeping the Sabbath, it says that your, your slaves must also rest on that day. And you're all in the commandment not to covet, you are also not supposed to covet your neighbor's slaves, which presupposes enslavement. And I just want to name that. I mean, I don't know if, if that's a weird thing to do, but I just want to name that every text we get is filtered through the language of the people of the time and the place. And then we have to wrestle with this. And I love this value of wrestling with the scriptures and in, and uh and not just sanitizing them and deodorizing them and fixing them and just pretending it's not there, but say, hey, you know what? There's stuff here that we've got to wrestle with. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are, there's going to be stuff in general conference that we have to wrestle with. Uh, there's going to be stuff that I say that listeners will, will rightly have to wrestle with, right? I'm not above all that either. So I just wanted to name that. But I do wanted to say something about the Sabbath really quickly. Um, I don't think that we get much of a chance to talk about environmental justice and climate justice. Uh, it's not something that we that we talk about every week. It's something that's connected to all of our justice movements. But I think if it, within this the uh, within the commandment to keep the Sabbath, where you're supposed to rest from domination over the environment and domination over one another and economic domination. If you look at the 39 prohibited categories of work in Judaism, almost all of them in some way have to do with domination over the environment. Uh, Agriculture, building, uh, working, all these other things, uh, building a fire. Like There's just so many things that we uh, were asked to do well, not we, but within Judaism, that t- Torah-observant Jews are asked to do that ends up being a way of dominating the environment and making it more habitable for humans. And I think we can't cease from those completely until the next world, the world to come, but every seven days there is a chance to rest from that type of domination over the environment. And I just think that is a very precious and beautiful gift that we have. And here's what I want to say. If people want to rank and prioritize, people might say, well, Derek, you're, you're working on gay justice first, and then and then maybe you'll get to climate justice. But here's what I want to say, is there's a sense in which climate justice is urgent and foundational to every other justice. Because let me put it this way. Let me just break it down and say it real plainly. If the gays don't have a planet to live on, that's not very pro-gay. Mm. It makes no sense to like make all these accomplishments for uh, for queer marriage and trans acceptance and all this other stuff if shortly we don't have an inhabitable planet, right? I think, and there's a time limit on that one, right? <laughs> We've got a, a time limit that an, um, that we're croaching up on, by which if we don't act, we will not have a planet to live on. So I just wanted to name that as in the midst of all these other things. 
But I still have a, a number of other things I wanted to say in terms of these issues of which way do we face and demanding of God, right? Because the reason that we're able to ask of God is because God first showed us God's character. Like there's nothing, I would have nothing to work with. I would have nothing to go on if God didn't first show God's character to be held accountable to it. That's why I love the um, the story. I keep coming back to it. The story of Jacob wrestling with God and prevailing over God, saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. That's because God was first revealed to Jacob earlier um, that that Jacob was able to do that. So I just want to name this. So there's this idea of which way do you face and whether we should ask the leaders to ask of God and whether that is violating God's timetable to ask the leaders to face God and demand of God and alter the timetable. Well, here's what it says. In terms of which way do you face, here's what 1 John 2 verses 1 through 2 says, and I'll be quoting from the New English translation. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. So which way does Jesus face? Jesus faces the Father. Jesus stands with us as an advocate facing the Father. Like, how dare people tell me that the prophets and apostles only face one way, and it's to us and not with us to God, bringing our requests to God. It's just inconceivable that anyone with an exhaustive and encyclopedic knowledge of scriptures will be able to ignore the multiple times in many ways where we are told to ask of God and to expect our leaders to ask of God. Like, I just, this is why I want to go back to St. Jerome, who said the ignorance of scriptures is the ignorance of Christ. And I'm not saying that members and leaders of the church are ignorant of the scriptures completely, but what they have is a partial knowledge. They hit on just a few proof texts here for some of their points and ignore the vast body of evidence on the other side that gives a contrast or a parallel or a, a an amendment or some other angle to it. Like, let's look at John chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. Jesus says to his disciples, this is in the farewell discourse right before he's about to die. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Look at what it says. We'll talk about timetable. Jesus wants to tell them more. I honestly think that one of the things he wanted to tell them was queer acceptance on that night. Like he's talking about love. Love one another as I have loved you. He's all about love. He even has a particular beloved disciple who's uh, of the same gender as himself. Right? I really think that he wanted to tell them about queer acceptance on that night, but he ran out of time because the apostles couldn't bear it right then. Like, what are we held back from now because our apostles can't bear it right now? So don't blame our deficiencies on this alleged timetable of God. God is always more willing to give us than we are to ask, I think. Let's go on to 2 Nephi uh, chapter 28, verses 29 and 30. Here's what it says. Woe be unto him that shall say, We have received the word of God, and we need no more of the word of God, for we have enough. <laughs> for behold, 
Thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of man line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel, for they shall learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth I will give more. And from them that shall say, We have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. I just want to name it. It says we're, we're given line upon line, and if we're not faithful to the line we're on, it will be taken away. And if we are faithful and invest and develop and implement what God has given us, we'll be given more. We will be good stewards of what God has given us, and our talents will make more talents. So how, how are people going to be blaming God's timetable? Like, hmm. what does appealing to God's timetable mean in contexts like this? Unless it's just a manipulative way of covering our deficiencies in being ready for revelation, right? The more ready we are for revelation, the more God will give us. The more less, and this might not be the only reason that God doesn't give us revelation. There could be other reasons, but this is one that needs to be named. Hmm. We can't just look at oppressed members of the church and say, It's not your time yet. <laughs> it's not your time. You know, I, I think that no one who's on the um, on the privileged end of the timetable should tell others to wait. Nah. Right? If, if people who have been disadvantaged by the timetable want to talk about waiting on God and, and mm -hmm. how whatever, sure, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But for for folks who already have access to marriage and they're married to look at me and say, well, it's not your turn. Like that makes no sense. Nah. Right. How dare you talk about the timetable when it's not working against you? Right. That that's hypocritical. It's, yeah. it's, it's just makes no sense. Right. And it, here's, here's what's the thing. It, like people are going to say, well, Derek, you're, you're being arrogant. You're being, you're not being humble. You're not being whatever. Let me just name. I'm formed by the church. I am formed by the scriptures. The only thing I'm doing is repeating back to God what God has first told me. God is love. God is more ready to give than we are to ask. So, um, when we are when we who are faithful members demand of God, we are only responding in faith to a God who has commanded us to do so. We are mm -hmm. simply saying God's words back to God. We will not let God go until God blesses us. Let me just mention more, more scriptures. I'm sorry that I'm overloading people with all these scriptures, but this I need to make my case that there are many, many scriptures on my side. It is consistent. In fact, I can't even really think of any scriptures that that are against what I'm saying, right? That I, I just, uh, wow. That haven't been misappropriated because, you know, people yeah, stay. Yeah, I'm sure you can, I yeah. sure, I'm sure you can twist scriptures, but in context, like, I really think that there's a great harmony about God's character behind all this. So let's look at this. Ask, and it will be given to you. This is what Jesus says in one of the core texts of, of Christianity. It's in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and also in Third Nephi. Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11 is what I'm quoting. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. Let me just add, this isn't what it says, but I would say demand, and you'll get it. 
That's consistent with the, the tone of this passage. Let's go back to Jesus. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, oop, there's my name, knocks, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. (laughs) Is there anyone among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So how are you telling me I'm arrogant for demanding of God when when I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking, and the Father has in heaven is accountable to this promise? How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Let me just go on now to our uh, Luke. We've we've been loving Luke for a while, but we're going to we're going to get some more. And this is so important. I need to read it word for word. Luke 18:1 through 8. And this is literally Jesus. You know, most parables in the in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't tell us the purpose of them. He just kind of says it and we have to figure it out. He explicitly tells them that this is a parable about how you're supposed to pray. We should take that gift. Like, we rarely get uh, what the parable is for. But here it says, quote, Then Jesus told them a parable to show them that they should always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. There was also a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but later on he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor have regard for people, yet because this widow keeps on bothering me, I will give her justice, or in the end she will wear me out by her unending pleas. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unrighteous judge says. Won't God give justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Close quote. Ooh, this is so beautiful. I want to. I should memorize this. I should really memorize this. And if someone says something to me, they're going to get all eight verses right here, because we've got this unjust judge. And then we've got a marginalized individual, doubly marginalized economically. Um, In her her marital status, she's a widow and she's a a woman, right? And so she is asking for justice from this uh, worldly judge. And she keeps on bothering him. And that is how we're supposed to pray. Hmm. That's literally... Like, I can't even figure out how you don't make that interpretation. This is literally how we're supposed to pray. Not that God is an unjust judge, but that if even an unjust judge will do the right thing because we bother him enough, <laughs> how much more will God do the right thing because we bother him, uh, because we bother God enough? Right. And that's, that's how I, so I am not, like I said, I am not arrogant for doing in faith what Christ literally commanded me to do. Right, I don't think that demanding of God uh, is at all a problem here, and that's what we're supposed to do if we believe. And uh, let's look at James four verse two. It says, "You." It literally says, "You do not have because you do not ask." Okay, I just want to name that. Hmm. 
You know, the missionaries taught me Moroni's promise. Mm-hmm. Moroni's promise says, ask of God, demand of God. There's a promise, which means that we can hold God accountable to that promise, which means we can demand of God based on what God first has told us through that promise. Was it arrogant when I asked of God then? Of course, we all know James 1 verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom. Now, I just want to name that this any of you is emphatic in Greek. You didn't have to say that. You could have just said, if you lack wisdom. But it says, if any of you lack wisdom. Here you have an emphasis here. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Okay, this this fancy language basically says, if you ask of God, God won't, God won't chastise you for asking. And you'll get the wisdom that you are why you are asking for. So by framing it as, quote, demanding of God, um, as some people could be tempted to do, hypothetically, we are already prejudicing the conversation away from compassion and understanding and trying to close down the, uh, the conversation. And I just want to name, uh, let's talk about um, the timetable situation again. Like, okay. oh, just don't ask of God. God's got it. God's got this timetable. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Um, I want to read from Official Declaration 2 okay. because I think a lot of folks in the church, especially white folks, have not adequately absorbed every phrase of this. Here's what it says. Quote, aware of the promises made by the prophets and presidents of the church who have preceded us that at some time in God's eternal plan, all of our brethren who are worthy may receive the priesthood and witnessing the faithfulness of those from whom the priesthood has been withheld, we have pleaded long and earnestly in behalf of these, our faithful brethren, spending many hours in the upper room of the temple, supplicating the Lord for divine guidance, close quote. We've got a bunch of stuff here. Number one, they started out with the accountability. Promises. God made promises, and they're going to hold God accountable to that. Number two, they witnessed the faithfulness of the affected population. They saw and listened to and, and, and advocated for like they, which way were they facing here? They pleaded long and earnestly in behalf of these to God. Which way were they facing? Um, And notice, they pleaded long and earnestly. They didn't just ask once and say, whoops, that was good enough, we didn't get it. They did the the Luke 18 procedure of of annoying God until they got it. Now, I want to also name that it's probably not God who was was the the timetable here. It was probably... uh, uh, certainly on uh, white racism in the church that that delayed it, not that God delayed it, right? Yeah. But I just want to name that what they did was asking of God, mm-hmm. and it Many adjusted the timetable for a long time. Yeah, and so, um, so yeah, we've got we've got to. Uh, so here's let's go back to the story of the scouts, sometimes called the spies, in Numbers thirteen and fourteen. So here we've got. The children of Israel outside Canaan, they're about to take it uh, and enter into it. And they said, okay, here, we're going to send out these uh, scouts from each tribe into the land and check it out. And they did so for 40 days, and they came back, and 10 of them said, nope, we too scary, not going to do this. We're grasshoppers compared to them, so we're not going to go. 
And the Lord said, whoops, you just messed up the timetable. And he said, well, now it's going to be 40 years because I'm going to wait for this entire generation to die off. It's going to take 40 years. One year for every year that the scouts were exploring the land, you will have to be wandering in the wilderness. So how dare people talk about God's timetable when it's not all up to God? Some of it's on us. If we are not ready for something, God's not going to give it to us. And I have no evidence that we as a people are ready for revelation on issues of gender, gender identity, and sexuality. Hmm. Like, I'm ready. I, I know a bunch of people who are ready, but we as a people are not ready. Hmm. And we need to get ourselves ready for that. Um, look at what DNC 111 verse 11 says. Therefore, be ye as wise as serpents and yet without sin, and I will order all things for your good as fast as ye are able to receive them. Amen. Notice that last clause there. As fast as ye are able to receive them. God's more than willing to give us stuff. It's uh, just an ignorance of scriptures that doesn't allow us to have the knowledge of the promises to even hold God accountable. It's ignorance of scriptures that doesn't allow us to hold our leaders accountable. It is ignorance of scriptures that only lets us selectively pick parts of the scriptures. And, uh, uh, you know, that's what that's what Satan did. Did I say this already? That in Matthew not, 4 no, and in uh, that in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, Satan partially quotes the scriptures, but doesn't know the full power. And God and Jesus answers by quoting more scriptures, and I think that is um, that is what it means when Jerome says the ignorance of scriptures is the ignorance of Christ. Now I want to back and say I'm not talking about people who are just doing the best they can. That's not what Jerome is talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jerome is talking about ignorance of scriptures by people with means and power who selectively choose not to seek. That's exactly what Jerome is, is uh, cause I went back and looked at what he said in context. And so with, for people with power and privilege um, to not seek the scriptures diligently means that you're gonna completely miss Christ. And I just wanna name that, um, that everything we may or may not have heard this past week in conference, uh, we should think about it. Is it uh, based on a partial assessment of the witness of Scripture? Like the full witness of Scripture does say that we need to demand of God, that we need to ask of God, that we need to ask of God, seek of God, knock of God, all these other things. Like I, where does it say don't ask? Like... <laughs> Where does it, there's, where's this don't ask, don't tell coming from? It's not in the scriptures. Right. Like, we need to look at all the data. And I just want to say that everything I am, they created. The missionaries, the people, the leaders of this church created. They taught me to demand of God. And I'm not going to let God go until God blesses me. I'm not going to let the church go until it blesses me. And how did Jesus react to this? When the Syrophoenician woman in, in uh, Matthew's version... Uh, came up to him and demanded of him, he said, great is your faith because you know the promises. You know my character. Your faith is what led you to demand. Hmm. So one last thing about this which way do you face thing is in any biological system that I know, 
that you have a central uh, nervous system. It needs to go both ways. Like if I'm walking around and my brain tells my foot to move forward and my foot moves forward into a sharp corner and I stub my toe, but my toe has no contact with my brain, the messages only go one way, right? If my brain can tell my foot to do something, but my foot can't tell my brain that it hurts, well, how's my brain going to not know to stop to stop doing that? Right, you. It, every biological system that is healthy and functioning, the messages need to go both ways. My motor neurons need to tell my foot what to do, and my foot needs to tell my brain, "Stop doing that; it hurts." We do not have the both ways thing happening in the church today, because we are saying this hurts, and the central nervous system is not getting that memo. And they're just telling, and they're just doing things that hurt us more and more. And the pain message is not getting there, and it's not getting there enough. So, um, which way do you face a prophet of the Lord, a true prophet of the Lord? I guarantee you, in the name of Christ, absolutely has to face both ways. Absolutely has to listen to us people, and absolutely has to go and take this to God. And sometimes they may need to demand of God. And I am adequately justified by the full witness of Scripture on this. There's, I don't see any other way around this on this issue. Like who, like I have studied these Scriptures for years and years and years. The Scriptures that they told me to read, by the way, and. I just, I probably am just now repeating myself, but now I've said so much. Now, what do you think of all this? <laughs> Dude. <laughs> um, you said a lot, my guy. And uh, I agree with you. I really do. But I don't have anything that I have to add to that except, you know, a witness to what you have said. Well, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, you're welcome, my friend. Uh, it's also just a great place to end. We are at the probably 110 or 115 mark by now. I know. I didn't even finish saying everything that was on my notes, but I feel like I'm done for right now. <laughs> it's fine, my guy. We'll, we will have other opportunities. But uh, being, that, that, that's a, being that that is a good note to end on, I uh, just want to begin to wrap things up by... Um, Reminding you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about uh, current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. And then you can find us on Facebook by searching for us. That is correct. I also want to give a a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for helping out with the social media stuff and the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, including Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. The outlines will also be including the Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week. And uh, you can find 
a link to the outlines in the show notes as well as the drop down menu on our website. Same goes for transcripts. Is there anything else we need to put the people on to uh, for the near future? Any events or anything like that, Brother Derek? Nope, I don't think so. Very good. Then thank you for tuning in this week till we meet again next week. Yes, until we meet again next week, happy Easter, everyone, and bye-bye. <laughs>